0: You guys can be seated. We're going to dismiss our kids this morning to their classes. Welcome to Covenant Church today on this Father's Day. Welcome to our dads who are here this morning. My name's Weston, and it's great to be with y'all today. Um, Whether you realize it or not, we have actually been in a sermon series for the last few months called Foundations, and we've taken some detours along the way. Um, But the intention has been that... uh, and we do this often the intention has been that we would look at some of the primary core elements of what make covenant church covenant church and so we have talked about things like gospel centrality preaching the gospel to ourselves we've talked about unity within the body and today we're going to talk about mission and hopefully you realize that that these aren't things that should be unique to our church, right? These these are things that should be characteristic of any church that claims to be a Christian church, that claims to be a church of Jesus followers uh, who are seeking to live life in the way that he modeled life for us to live. And so it, it may be that you're out there this morning and you're thinking, man, we talk about gospel and mission all the time, but can't we agree that there are a few things that we need to hear more often or be reminded of more often than the gospel of Jesus and like the task that he has sent us on uh, as disciples or as followers of him in this world? Uh, I think a promise that we can make to you is that you're going to continue to hear that over and over again because if we're not declaring the gospel and if we're not continually reminding ourselves of how the gospel should propel us out into this world, then I would dare say that we're not a church. We're certainly not a church that is seeking to follow Jesus. And so we're going to continue down this track today um, and talk about... Mission, And I just want to reiterate something as we begin, something that is said often. Uh, but when we start talking about mission, it's not so much that the church has a mission, it's that God's mission has a church. So let me say that again. It's not so much that the church has a mission, it's that God's mission has a church. So we are the agents of God's mission, Mission is not just another thing in a long list of things that the church does. Mission is the purpose of the church. Mission is the purpose of the church. Gathering for a worship service on Sunday mornings is not the purpose of the church. Let me say that again. Gathering for worship on a Sunday morning is not the purpose of the church. Now, it's a good thing, right? It's something that we do, though, because it should facilitate and perpetuate the mission. This should be a time when we come together and we're reminded of the gospel, and we're encouraged by the gospel, and we're equipped with the gospel to participate in God's gospel mission. And you may say, well, isn't worship the purpose of the church? Isn't, isn't that why the church exists? And, and I would say that ultimately, worship is the end of the church being obedient to the mission. Worship is the end result of us being obedient to the mission of God. It is the ultimate end of the church, but it is the result of us fulfilling our purpose. Worship is not primarily about singing some songs to God. It's about being obedient to God. Or put another way, the best way to worship God is by doing what he has told you to do. The best way to worship God is by being obedient to what he has called us all to. And so you can come together we can come together, we can sing some songs, we can have a, an emotional experience, and, and, and then go back to a life where we are not being obedient to God. And, and as a result, we can sing some songs, but yet not be living a life that is worshiping God. And so we have to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us so that we can also be reminded of what Jesus has now sent us as the church to do. And if all we do is this, if all we do is gather together and say, that's church, or that's the purpose of the church, or, or for some reason Jesus left heaven and came down here and died on a cross just so that we can gather together on Sunday mornings and sing some songs and then have, have nothing else in our life right, that, that, that displays or declares the gospel, then we are missing the point of what Jesus did. Paul says in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You following that this morning? Paul says, true and proper worship is not about what's coming out of your mouth. It's what's happening in your life. It's about offering your life as a living sacrifice to God in light of what he has done for you, in view of God's mercy, meaning in view of what God has done for us through his son Jesus Christ by sending his only son to die so that we might be reconciled to him, the response to that, the only proper and true response of worship to Jesus is to then offer our lives as a living sacrifice to him. So listen, the New Testament is not primarily a book of liturgy, meaning it's not a book of prescriptions on how we gather together to worship God on Sunday morning. It is a book of mission that recounts the story of Jesus, the sent one of God, and the church sent by the Father, Son, and Spirit. It recounts the story of Jesus and the apostles, the early church, seeking to be obedient to the Father. It is a story of sentness, of the Son who was sent by the Father, and of the Spirit who was sent by the Son. And of the church that is sent by the Father, Son, and Spirit. And when we talk about the church, we're talking about both the collective and the individual. Um, Not just the we, but also the you. When we talk about mission, we're not just talking about things that we do together. We're also talking about how you live life every day in light of Jesus, right? how you live life as an individual, as somebody who claims Jesus, as somebody who is hopefully seeking to follow him. Mission should be every day. It should be the heartbeat of your life and your existence. You know, uh, when I was a kid growing up in the church, mission was presented as being something that was optional. I don't know if this is your experience or not. I talk about this a lot because I wonder if, if there are some of you uh, because of, of maybe the church environment that you grew up in, if you still view mission as a choice or as an option for the Christ follower. And, and I would say to you the biblical example is nothing could be farther from the truth because mission is not just some other thing that the church does. Mission is the purpose of the church. But, but when I was a kid, mission wasn't presented as mission or the mission of God. It was presented as missions. It was a program of the church. It was a department of the church alongside music ministry or youth ministry. It was just one other thing and a long list of things that we did. And so the, the takeaway for me as a kid was, one, that missions was primarily about going somewhere else. It was primarily about leaving and going to another part of the world. Missions uh, was not about anything really that happened at home. Apparently there wasn't mission work to be done in the place where we lived, And also, the takeaway for me was that it was only for special called people. So in other words, what I I gleaned from my church upbringing was that uh, we were not all called to be missionaries for Jesus. Instead, those were special people um, who had responded to some kind of individual calling that Jesus had placed on their lives. Um, Also, uh, a takeaway was that mission work was something that you did for like a week in another part of the world, and then you came back and you just lived your regular life the rest of the year. That The missions was this kind of project-based thing. And so, in light of that, my understanding was that this wasn't for everyone. And and yet, as as I've grown as a Christ follower, um, as I've read the New Testament over and over again, one of the things that I think is abundantly clear is that, one... This isn't something that only some Christ followers are called to do. Now, some are called to go elsewhere in the world. But I think it's abundantly clear that if you have been saved by Jesus, if you've placed your faith in him, then he has sent you as his church, he has sent me as his church to be on mission for him in our world every single day. And so today, what I want to do is, I want to talk practically about what it really means to live life on mission. And, and I want to do this by uh, examining the lives uh, or the life of the Apostle Paul. I think that's one of the best things that we can do. When we start talking practically, what does it mean to live on mission? I think we look at the life of Jesus, and then we look at like the the life of the first class, right? Those apostles that he sent out with that great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all things, that he had commanded them. And so we're going to look today a little bit uh, at one particular instance in the life of Paul. Um, and, and, and before we do that, let me just clarify one thing. When we talk about mission or the mission of God or the mission of the church, um, what, what I'm primarily talking about this morning is the work of making disciples. When we talk about the task or the purpose for which, for which God has sent the church into the world, we are talking about the task Of making disciples. So, this is not primarily uh, about planting churches or starting ministries or even leading ministries. It is about the work of making disciples. And this is very specifically what Jesus sent his apostles out to do. And he says, I want you to go do the same things that I have been doing. So Jesus made disciples, and then he sent his disciples to go and make disciples. This is the Great Commission. And I think there are two parts to this whole disciple-making thing. I think the first part, part A, would be about proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel as we live life. Just in our everyday life, that we are finding opportunities to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about the good news of what he has done for us on the cross. And then we are also demonstrating to people through our lives, through our service, through pouring out ourselves to other people, we are demonstrating to them the good news of the gospel. So those two things are intertwined, and I would say that that's kind of part A of making disciples. Part B of making disciples is this teaching people how to be more like Jesus through the example of our lives. So for those of us who are Christ followers, our mission in our everyday life is to tell people about Jesus, demonstrate to people what the gospel is like, demonstrate to people how much Jesus loves them, and then we are to live lives that essentially say, now come follow me in this, right? I'm not perfect, but I am seeking to follow Jesus in my everyday life. So discipleship for Jesus was not about simply sitting down and teaching a class called discipleship, going through a discipleship curriculum, even though Jesus certainly taught, and that's a part of it. But so much of the example of Jesus, his disciple-making process was about saying, come follow me and do what I do. So we're going to go over here today, and we're going to do something. We're going to talk to these people. We're going to go over here today. So Jesus was constantly on the move, and his disciples were with him. It was this like practicum experience. It wasn't primarily a classroom experience. It was active learning. And so we, we do evangelism, we proclaim and demonstrate the gospel, and then we invite people into our lives to do life with us. And so you could say the gospel mission is about seeing people come to know Jesus and seeing people become more like Jesus. But remember, guys, God, God's not like grading us on how successful we are in this. You know, our eternity is not based on how many people come to know Jesus through our ministry, right? That is his work. He's the one who does the work of life transformation, right? Uh, Jesus, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit, drawing people to the Father. What he's called us to do is to simply be obedient, to proclaim how much he loves us, and this incredible good news of what he has done, to demonstrate that to people around us. And, and what we know is that creates some fertile soil, hopefully, for the Holy Spirit to move and do the work of life transformation. So, so our mission is to simply be obedient to what he has called us to do. Um, any mission... That does not have making disciples as its ultimate end is not a gospel mission. It doesn't mean it's not a good thing, but if the ultimate end goal of a project or an endeavor. If it's not making disciples, then I would say it's not a gospel mission. So we've been talking about uh, The Hub a little bit today. So so The Hub is an organization in our city that is seeking to address poverty, and we're seeking to tackle the issue of human trafficking. So we run the region's only clinical residential recovery program for survivors of human trafficking. Now that's all great stuff, isn't it? But our ultimate end goal is to make disciples, right? Because here's the deal. We can, with people who are uh, in poverty, we can help them get free of their addictions. We can maybe address their mental health issues. Uh, We can find them a place to live, we can get them a car, we can help them find a job, we can help them get into the normal rhythms of life or find some freedom from addictions or find a sustainable life. We can do all of those things and those are all good things. But if our goal is not to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel to them along the way, if our goal isn't to introduce them to Jesus as we are doing those things, then we can make their life better, but then they die and go to hell. Right? So, so what have we really done for them? So any mission that doesn't have as its ultimate end goal making disciples is not a gospel mission. Our goal is not just simply to make people's temporary lives better. Like, we want to make their eternity better. And so we can't lose sight of that. Those things are also deeply intertwined. So let's look today at an experience in the life of Paul, and, and I want to explore the practical side of, of what being on mission looked like for him, and I'm going to read this morning an extended passage. We're not even going to put it up on the screen. I'm, I'm, I just want you to kind of listen uh, to this story. This is, this is a very epic story in the life of Paul, um, and then we're going to look at four quick points that I think we see in the story, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you what they are so that you can be listening for them As we go through this account. Um, So four things that we see in this particular experience in the life of Paul. First of all, Paul was a great missionary because he was on mission no matter where he was and no matter what his circumstances were. So what made Paul a great missionary was not the fact that he traveled to a bunch of places. It isn't necessarily even the fact that he planted a bunch of churches. What I think made Paul a great missionary was the fact that he was on mission no matter where he was and no matter what his circumstances were. Secondly, uh, Paul displayed a curious lack of fear. He displayed a curious lack of fear. Number three, Paul exhibited leadership in the midst of chaos. He exhibited leadership in the midst of chaos. And then four, Paul brought joy to his context by addressing brokenness. So this is Acts 27. And just a little bit of backstory here. Paul has been arrested. Uh, He's kind of gone on trial. And because he's a Roman citizen, he has appealed his case uh, to Rome. And so, where we pick up in the story, Paul is setting sail for the city of Rome, and they encounter some issues along the way. This is Acts 27, beginning in verse 13, and this is, this is a long passage, so, so I would encourage you to just kind of get a mental picture of what's happening here. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore... And soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kota, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's, ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that we would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and Not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. And when the the fourteenth night had come, as we we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and they found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach but striking a reef they ran the vessel aground the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And after they were brought safely through, It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. All right. Um, The longest passage of Scripture you've ever heard read. In church on a Sunday morning, but man, what an incredible story, right? Like this is like an epic adventure novel, and, and yet it's it's Paul's life, it, it's Paul's experience. Paul had had a rough couple weeks. I think it's clear. Like he's a prisoner. Uh, He's been held captive on this boat in the midst of a terrible storm for at least 14 days, right? Uh, In the middle of this storm, uh, they haven't eaten in two weeks. Uh, He gets shipwrecked, literally washes to shore. He's been exposed to the elements. He's cold. And if that wasn't enough, he gets bitten by a poisonous snake, right? Right? And, and here's the thing, as I read this, I, I, try, to, I try to put myself into Paul's shoes and, and I just wonder, man, how, how would I respond in this type of situation? And I think the truth is, is for many of us, if we were experiencing what Paul was experiencing, we would have long ago convinced ourselves that obviously we were somehow outside of God's will. Like we would have convinced ourselves, because all of these obstacles were continually coming into our path, that obviously we were doing something wrong. And, and I just want to point out to us, guys, that this is a false doctrine that many of us hold fast to, this idea that if we're really doing what God wants, then everything's going to be easy. Or that if we're really doing what God wants, that everything that we need, every provision that we need or everything that we want is just going to magically appear. That God is going to pave the way for us. And and the alternate, if we're not doing what God wants, then there are going to be roadblocks. There's going to be hardship. Like it's going to be tough going. I I, I think that this finds its rooting really more in like pagan mythology. So you think about like the Greek and Roman mythological gods, this this is more their MO, right? This isn't the God of the Bible that we're talking about. Because if you read the New Testament, um, we're talking about a God that doesn't even pave the way for his own son to have an easy road. Right, He doesn't pave the way for Paul to have an easy road. He doesn't pave the way for Peter to have an easy road. In fact, all of these guys are martyred or exiled or experience some kind of incredible hardship in their pursuit of God and in their pursuit of God's mission. And, and, and Scripture goes so far, for all the mystery in this book, it's pretty clear that this isn't going to be easy for the people who choose to walk down this road. Jesus talks about this. The example of the apostles points to this. Jesus talks about like the narrow road and, and the narrow gate, and and most people are not going to choose to follow Jesus. Most people are not going to choose to take up their cross. Because in doing so, we are knowingly choosing. The difficult path, right? We are knowingly choosing the hard road. And the reason why we would do that is because we have experienced and come to an understanding of the beauty of the gospel, right? That's the only explanation for why a guy like Paul would subject himself to this kind of ridiculousness, right? because his life has been changed by Jesus. So the example of Scripture is not simply that things are going to be hard. It's that we are going to have joy and hope and purpose in the midst of hardship, in the midst of rejection, in the midst of obstacles, that we will be filled with with God, that we will be filled with his Holy Spirit, and that if it were not for that, there would be no way that we could actually follow Jesus in the way that he's called us to in this world. He says, I'm sending you a helper, because you can't do this on your own. Paul couldn't do this on his own. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, not only propels us out into this world, it actually gives us the tools that we need to do the work that Jesus has called us into. So Paul was a great missionary, not just because he went to a bunch of places, but because no matter his situation or location or circumstances, he is on mission. In the midst of the storm, he is on mission, right? In the midst of his hardship, he is on mission, being shipwrecked on an island, being snake bit. In the midst of this, he is on mission. He's not taking a breather, right? He's not going like we would. I just need some me time, right? Paul is engaging people for the gospel in the midst of this process. And I think it's important to like note the ways that he is doing this as well. Paul's not waiting for the right circumstances to do mission. He's not waiting for the stars to align. He's not waiting for the situation to be exactly uh, perfect. He is doing mission in spite of the circumstances. And so I read the story of Paul and I look at my own life and I go, man, what's my excuse, right? What's your excuse? Like, what is it that you're waiting on in order to follow Jesus in the way that he's called us to follow him? Secondly, Paul displays this just complete lack of fear. And man, if there's any message that I could preach every day to myself and to Christians in today's culture, it's a message that asks the question, what are you so afraid of? What are you so afraid of? What is it that you don't believe about the gospel that is leading you to this place where your life is characterized by fear and an inordinate focus on your own safety and security. If you get on social media today and just start reading through the things that people are posting and you dig beneath the surface a little bit, I think what you find is that people are afraid of everything. People are afraid of everything. People are afraid of who's in office or not in office. People are afraid of, you know, that people are listening to them through their, like, Google Tower thing that sits in their house. People are afraid that people are watching them through the camera on their computer. People are afraid of of things that haven't happened. If you get on, like, my Neighborhood Association page... People are afraid of dogs. People are afraid of loud noises. People are afraid of other people that don't look like them. People are afraid of random people who are walking down the street. Like it's it's the most. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? There. We live in a a city that has a million gated communities because, for some reason, that gives us an illusion of safety. For some reason, we feel more secure. In those settings, why do we need that? Like, what is it that we are so afraid of? Because the gospel tells us, right, we have nothing to fear. If you, if you do this, like a, like a word study in scripture, of all the times that God says be unafraid or be courageous or be bold or be strong or take heart, I mean, the Bible is riddled with examples of God saying to countless people, what are you afraid of? And so I say that to us today. And I think we look at this example in Paul's life and go, man, this guy was fearless. Not in like this reckless, insane way. Oftentimes we associate fearlessness with with just brainlessness. That's not what we're talking about. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, how are we not finding our hope in the gospel in such a way that it's leading us to just live lives that are characterized by fear? Because the gospel should lead us to be a people who are bold, courageous, fearless, unworried about the opinions of other people, unworried about the temporary things of this world, because we know that we have an eternal hope in Christ and that this world will pass away and that God will bring about a new heaven and a new earth and those are the things that are truly lasting. Those are the things that are truly eternal. And if our hope is in that, if that's our future, then what do we have to fear? Have we forgotten that Jesus one, the keys of death and hell. Have we forgotten that? So we don't even have to fear death. Why are we afraid of our neighbor? Right? In the middle of this, Paul exhibits leadership. And, I I, mean, I think this is so key. Um, There's this move in today's world as we... Increasingly, become a post-Christian culture as we increasingly become a post-modern culture. There's a call from some people that believers should like uh, retreat from society and retreat from mainstream culture, and that we should kind of take this monastic approach and sequester ourselves away from culture. And I just want to ask you: Do you do you see Paul doing that? Listen, Paul is living in the midst of a pagan culture that is more pagan than the America we live in right now, believe me. Paul is finding himself, like, literally stepping into the milieu with the political structure of Rome and the society that he's living in. He's literally going to Rome to appeal to Caesar, and he has purpose in this. Like He has gospel intentionality in this. He is going because of the mission that God has sent him on. He has every intention to go to Rome. And even in the midst of this storm, Paul's fearlessness leads him to stand up in the midst of sailors and centurions and soldiers and other prisoners who are all scared to death. Luke, who's writing uh, this account in Acts, says at the beginning, we read that we knew that all hope was lost. Paul is the one guy standing up going, all hope is not lost, and and I have no doubt that people thought he had to have been just completely insane, because not only is he saying, no, we're all going to make it, he's saying things like, I saw an angel, (laughs) right? God has spoken to me, and we're all going to be okay. Like, why do we think that the creator of heaven and earth doesn't work in supernatural ways? Right? We have to expect that of him. Paul's standing up, and he is providing leadership. He is the captive in this story. He is standing up and providing leadership in the midst of a pagan culture. He is the voice of reason in the midst of confusion. Um, And all of this comes from his faith, right? Right? His faith in God is so strong, his belief in the gospel is so strong that he's the one standing up going, hey, you guys should really eat something. It's been two weeks now. I mean, like, let's, I said everything's going to be fine. And so a few things within that, Paul stands in stark contrast to the prevailing culture, right? So Christianity, guys, we talk about this, but Christianity is a countercultural movement. Christianity is not a subcultural movement, um, which is what it is in America today. Often Christianity reflects the mainstream culture. So we have our Christian versions of things that, that, are, that are mainstream. We have our Christian music and our Christian T-shirts and our Christian movies and all of this stuff. But the Christianity that Jesus provides the example for, is not a subcultural movement, it's a countercultural movement. So it stands in stark contrast to the prevailing culture. And, and so should our lives. There should be something distinct and different and, and weird, honestly, about the way that we live life because we have been so motivated and so changed by the gospel. This is a countercultural movement. Uh, secondly, Paul's mission Listen, Paul's mission here doesn't seem to be to, like, make people behave. Paul's mission is not, like, behavioral modification. And he is on the ship with undoubtedly pagan sailors, Roman centurions that undoubtedly worship a number of gods, all of these people who don't believe in God. And Paul realizes, I cannot force these people to believe in God. I can't even coax somebody Into believing in God, right? That's only work that God can do. All I can be faithful to do is to proclaim the gospel, which Paul does, by the way, in the midst of this, and to demonstrate the gospel. So to tell people that God loves them and to show them through my life that God loves them. That's all that I can do. The rest of the work is God's. So Paul's mission is not just to make people behave. It's not moral behavioral modification. His, gospel is to be, or his mission is to be faithful and obedient to what Jesus has called him to do. Paul's voice is a voice of encouragement. In the midst of this, it isn't a voice of condemnation. Notice Paul isn't saying, guys, you know this terrible storm is happening because y'all worship all kinds of weird stuff, right? He doesn't say anything like that. He's encouraging people and everything's going to be okay. God has spoken to me. We're all going to be all right. We're all going to be alive. Now eat something. Everything's okay. Paul is a voice of encouragement in the midst of this. And then finally Paul maintains a faithful presence. Paul has not sequestered himself away in a cabin or in his cell. He's not over there in a corner like just praying the whole time and not talking to anybody going, "Well, I'm going to be okay, but all these other people are going to die." No, no, no. He is with them. He is in the middle of this situation with them, providing encouragement and not condemnation, maintaining faithful presence. And and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but man, I, I think that this story is like a fantastic passage to be examined by believers who feel called to be a part of the political process today. I think, I think this is an important thing for us to remember, that no matter what you do, like no matter what your vocation is, um, and, and, and especially if you are somebody who feels led to be a part of the political process, that the mission does not change based on the kind of vocational work that you do, right? The mission is still to make disciples. And so if you feel called to be a part of the political process, your mission is still to make disciples, right? It, it's not simply to impact some very temporary change or policy things. The goal, the big picture, as a, a representative of Jesus in our world is to make disciples, is to declare and to demonstrate the gospel as you go, as you live life. And I think this is a great passage to look at and go, man, how does this guy Paul interact with this completely pagan culture? How does he engage them? How does he lead them? How does he stand up as a voice of encouragement and hope? How does he declare and demonstrate the gospel in the midst of it? And then finally this morning, Paul brings joy to his context by addressing brokenness. Um, Paul brings joy to his context, even though he has experienced great hardship and been shipwrecked and snake bitten and had you know been exposed to the elements and just all of these things. He is the one who's going into the home of the governor of the island, Publius, and and is going, oh, your father, and going like going into his his father who is ill and and praying for him and laying hands on this guy he doesn't know and who certainly doesn't know anything about the God that Paul serves. And and then guess what happens? Not only does he heal him, but, but then the inhabitants of the island start coming to Paul, right? So these pagan people are now coming to Paul going, man, what is this? So there is great joy that is brought to the island Because this man who is led by the gospel of Jesus has come here. Now, this is something that is so essential to mission in today's world that we cannot miss it. So often in America today, the church is not characterized by the joy that we bring to our culture. We are characterized more often by the condemnation and vitriol that we spew upon our culture. That is not the example of Paul here. He could have very easily taken that tact. He does not. His mode is to demonstrate and to declare the gospel And he demonstrates, as he has been empowered to, by healing. What an incredible thing, man, bringing joy to this place in the name of Jesus. And so if you call yourself somebody who is trying to live life on mission, and yet there is not this intention on your part to bring... Encouragement and joy to your context, whether that's your neighborhood or it's your workplace or it's your sports team or, or whatever it is. If your goal is not to demonstrate and declare the gospel by bringing hope and bringing joy and being somebody who is a rock of faith and being somebody who is encouraging, then man, what are you doing and what, what gospel are you reading? What Bible are you reading? Because that's not the example that we see here. So often, I hear people say, man, you know, I I, I love Jesus and and, and I'm a believer, but man, I just don't know what God wants me to do in my life. And and I just just think, man, out of all of the things that we read in Scripture where you kind of go, man, what does that really mean and that seem ambiguous, I just think this is one of those things that is crystal clear, right? In the same way that the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's the church. That's disciples of Jesus Christ that we have been sent into this world in the same way that Jesus was sent into this world to make disciples, to declare and to demonstrate his gospel. And yet, I think the enemy gets a foothold in our lives and leads us to this place where we say, you know what? I'm just not going to do anything right now because I don't know exactly what that is. Listen, as you go... Jesus at one point in the gospel sends out the 12 and he tasks them with some very specific things. But one thing that he says to them is, as you go, like as you live life, as you go from day to day, I want you to say this, the kingdom of heaven is coming near. The kingdom of heaven is coming near. The place, the realm, where everything is as God would have it be. Is coming near. It's it's starting to touch this world in and through Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus sent out his disciples, he said, as you go, declare that to people. And I believe the example too is as you go, demonstrate that to people. Foretastes of the love of God and the mercy in light of his mercy give your life as a living sacrifice in the same way that Jesus gave his life as an offering, as a sacrifice, as he poured himself out for us. May we also pour ourselves out for those in our context, those in our culture who are lost, who don't know him. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. Do you know why? It's because he was a friend of sinners. It's because that's who he spent his time with. People who needed a physician. People who needed hope. People who needed love. May we not pull away from that, but instead engage it fully. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the reminder in my own heart this morning of the beauty of your mission, of the beauty of your purposes. God, how incredible it is that you would take a sinner like me and not only forgive me, but God, you would invite me to be with you in this task. And I pray that in this Bible-belty part of our country, God, where there is so much church influence, God, I pray that we would not Come to a place of complacency when it comes to your gospel. I pray that we would not come to see your gospel as just being routine or normal, but, God, that we would daily be reminded of just how incredible your sacrifice is. God, how incredible it is that you would do what you did for us and how completely undeserving we are. Father, may we never lose sight of that. May we be propelled out into our world by it on a daily basis, God, seeking to live life on mission for you because of what you have done for us. God, teach us to be more like you. Father, help us to cooperate with you more in that. God, may we seek to submit more and more of who we are to you every day. We love you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I said earlier that part of our purpose in coming together on Sunday morning is to be reminded of the gospel and encouraged by the gospel and equipped with the gospel to go out into this world. And when we come to a time of communion, like there is no better picture of that than this experience. That's part of the reason why Jesus has given this special time to us. Not not just to be this ritualistic thing that we do every week, but that it truly would be something that makes us go, oh yeah, I... I I remember what Jesus has done. And, and, oh, man, how how incredible is that? Like, so let us come to the table this morning. Um, If you are new to Covenant Church, we invite you, if you're a believer, to join us in taking communion just by coming up and and taking a little bread and dipping it. Um, But before you come this morning, I would encourage you to just take a few moments, spend some time in prayer, ask God to reveal... um, sin in your life to you. Ask him to reveal things to you that that need to change. We are all people who are constantly uh, hopefully coming to become more like him. We're all on this journey. None of us are like there at the pinnacle of some kind of Christian life. We all have growth. We all need to develop. Um, And so I would encourage you to to seek him during this time, ask his forgiveness in the midst of this, and then come to the table um, with joy and thankfulness for what he has done.